Um, see, we've been looking at uh, 1 Samuel, and uh, last week, I believe we almost made it through chapter 20. We're going to call it done, unless you have questions. Although there were two things that came up last week that I wanted to address. Um, we kind of got off on a rabbit trail uh, regarding authority and power. And the rabbit trail uh, was an attempt to um, help people understand that we have a delegated authority from God, that God as the sovereign, the true king, has all authority. And it's important in understanding that because uh, when we want to understand how God can command things and that they happen, uh, it's because he has the authority to do that. That is part of who he is. And that he has delegated an authority to humanity. And it is that delegated authority that allows people to execute uh, powerfully uh, God's plan. But people went wrong. And so uh, it's oftentimes what we see is we see a misuse of power. And we certainly see that when we look at the kings of uh, Israel and Judah. Uh, we see a, a use and a misuse of power. And that power comes through the delegated authority of God. So uh, my point last week, uh, which I'm sure got some people maybe a little confused, was that uh, authority always precedes power. You can never have power without authority. You can misuse or reject the authority or the, the divine plan that's been placed upon you and act uh, inappropriately, but nonetheless you couldn't act at all without authority uh, in order to do that. So I uh, wanted to clarify that. I also wanted to talk a little bit about covenant this morning. And as we, uh, as we look into covenant, um, I'd like to... Uh, we're, we're going to talk more about covenant. We're going to talk about uh, David and as he's uh, fleeing Saul and what that process looked like, both as, as David became officially exiled and what he did. We want to pay particular attention to how he... Uh, behaves and responds in the face of great challenges. Um, the, the section we're going to look at this morning is chapter 21 and 22. And uh, what we've seen is we've seen is David is, has been uh, challenged uh, by Saul and that Saul wants to put him to death because he realizes that David is the true king and that as long as he lives, his kingdom... Saul's kingdom, not God's kingdom, but Saul's kingdom cannot remain. And uh, that basically David is reminding him every instant of his life of how he's been disqualified because of his disobedience and reminding him of the hardness of his heart to the point where it actually drives him nuts. Saul goes kind of crazy. And uh, we see that in the midst of that, David turns uh, in three different directions. He first turns to the prophet, Samuel, we saw that, that he went to Samuel of Ramah, and then he fled from there and he went to the son of the king. So he sought out uh, personal advice of a godly man. And then today we're going to take a look at how he flees to the, the priest. And so we see a, a prophet, priest, king theme continuing to play through. We also see a fulfillment of God's word, so that's the the preview of what we're getting into. But as, as David officially flees, um, he runs to the priest, and uh, we're going to see that, that there's a, a series of events that happen that push him out. 
And uh, he wrote three songs about this incident that we're going to look at this morning. So it must have deeply affected David's life. Anytime that, uh, you know, he wrote a lot of songs about a lot of different things. <coughs> he wrote three in particular about the series of events that we're going to look at this morning. So um, those three psalms are Psalm uh, 34, Psalm 52, and Psalm 56. And these are all about the incident that we're going to look at this morning. What, what, same again, 32. Uh, 34. Or 34. 52 and 56. And, uh, you know, we can flip the coin and see which one we want to read this morning uh, as our introduction. Um, let's go ahead and, and read Psalm 34. So I was going to say, start with those small ones. Well, yeah, yeah. And work. <laughs> well they're, they're all about the same length. <coughs> and what you'll see is you'll see a common theme throughout, which is something that we want to capture. I uh, don't necessarily want to do a, a study of these three psalms this morning, but I did want to provide them to you for extra reading. And also as the introduction to the section we're going to look at this morning. So would somebody like to read Psalm 34? I will praise the Lord at all times. My mouth will continually praise Him. I will boast in the Lord. Let the oppressed hear and rejoice. Magnify the Lord with me. Let's praise His name together. I sought the Lord's help and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him for help are happy. Their faces are not ashamed. This oppressed man cried out and the Lord heard. He saved him from all his troubles. The Lord's angels camped around camps around the Lord's loyal followers and delivers them. Taste and see uh, the Lord is good. Uh, how blessed is, is the one who takes shelter in him. Remain loyal to the Lord, you chosen people of, uh, of his, for his loyal followers lack nothing. Even young lions sometimes lack food and are hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you what it means to be the Lord. Do you want to really live? Would you love to live a long, happy life? Then make sure you don't speak evil words or use deceptive speech. Turn away from evil and do what is right. Strive for peace and promote it. The Lord pays attention to the godly and hears their cry for help. But the Lord opposes evildoers and wipes out all memory of them from the earth. The godly cry out, and the Lord hears. He saves them from all their troubles. The Lord is uh, near the brokenhearted, who delivers those who are discouraged. The godly face many dangers, but the Lord saves them from each one of them. He protects all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil people self-destruct. Those who hate the godly are punished. The Lord rescues his servants. All who take shelter in him escape punishment. Amen. So, how many believe that? How many believe that uh, uh, many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all? The first part's easy to believe. Yeah, the first part's easy to believe. The second part, 
kind that of depends on your perception of, of deliverance, too. I mean, what looks to us like something terrible, the Lord can see the broader picture and see you heading for things that you're not aware of sometimes. Right. And that, that comes uh, in a, a spirit of the fear of the Lord, where um, David says in verse 7, he says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them. So there is a, a certainly an attitude of reverential respect for God and an understanding that he is working and uh, working for our good even when it may not look like that is happening in the world. And so you see that that's part of the way that David is responding to this situation. He knows that uh, what he's going through doesn't look like a good situation, right? Um, Saul tries to spear him. Uh, he even deceives his own son about this. Um, he tries to set David up to be killed multiple times. Um, he's unsuccessful. Nonetheless, David is forced to flee. Uh, where we left off last week was uh, at the end of, of chapter 20. It says, Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be, be will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he arose, Jonathan, and departed, while, or David, uh, while Jonathan went into the city. So what happened was uh, Jonathan got to go back and eat at the king's table and uh, continue serving in the king's court, but David had to leave that very moment. And he left with nothing on, but the clothes on his back. Um, he didn't have a chance to go back and pack a bag. He didn't have a, a chance to prepare in any way a plan. He just found himself standing there. <coughs> Jonathan says, okay, remember, we made covenants with each other. Um, and that, that covenant was before God. And uh, I want to remind you to honor your part in that covenant. And then, good luck, you know, have, have a good life. <laughs> and... Uh, and it's not that Jonathan has no regard for David. He is just at the end of what he can do in order to help David. Um, he's done. He's put his own life at risk in order to intervene to help preserve David. And he's now at a point where there's nothing more that he can do and he has to trust the Lord. Uh, and David has to trust the Lord in order to carry him through this, this time of trial. So David, at this point, heads out. And I want to remind you that um, we had a discussion last week about covenant. And I made some uh, statements about covenant. And the, the part of covenant that we think of as promise, which uh, covenants, and uh, I've, I've got some write-ups on covenant. Uh, there's, it's a classic form of contract in uh, ancient uh, Near East uh, history. Right, So uh, this is a way that, for example, and we still have these kinds of contracts today. For example, we'll have land covenants. And they always uh, usually have some introduction. And in this case, when you look at the covenant uh, writing in the, in the Bible, it always follows this form where there's a, a preamble that discusses the need for the, the covenant and the parties that are going to be involved. And then there's a declaration of who the parties are. And uh, there's always uh, two parties in a covenant. Uh, for example, God has made several covenants with humanity. 
who are the two parties? God and humanity, right? It can be an individual covenant between David and Jonathan, or it can be a corporate covenant. And so you've heard me talk about corporate versus individual. And so sometimes we look at these covenants and they're a corporate covenant. And that's how we know that they apply to us individually, is because we fall underneath that corporate umbrella. So there's always uh, two parties in a covenant, and then there's uh, terms of the covenant. And often, uh, in those terms, it sets out what the obligations or duties are. Now, if it's a unilateral covenant, which means it's, it's from one party's perspective, perspective only. So, for example, if you have a more powerful person entering into uh, a political covenant, um, you might have a king uh, entering into a covenant with those that he has conquered, or those that, when I say conquered, um, the, the lesser powerful party becomes a servant of the king. They call that a vassal. Um, so this would be a, a, a suzerain vassal treaty. And the suzerain being the king and the vassal being the one who serves him. And these types of covenants are typically unilateral. And that there's a declaration of terms that are binding on one party that are not binding on the other. And from that, what you see is the thing that follows, which is the promise and the curse. Um, the curse part, um, because there's not an obligation on the, on the servant's part, the obligation is only on the... Uh, the king's part, um, you, you typically find the promise in there without a statement of uh, blessing and cursing. But if you have a, a conditional covenant, which means that you've got your two parties, the terms of the covenant are spoken, um, and then there's a mutual obligation. And so we often see this kind of covenant in the Bible too, where um, the blessing of the covenant uh, is conditioned upon the fulfillment of the obligation of one party. And so we see that in a, a covenant like, for example, the Mosaic Covenant. God said, you know, you'll be blessed if you obey, you'll be cursed if you disobey. And you see that very clearly laid out in Deuteronomy and in other areas of the Bible where that covenant is, is renewed and, and restated, that there is a blessing and a cursing. And uh, a lot of times we focus only on the promise side of the covenant, and that was somewhat confusing last week, is that uh, I, I was talking about some unilateral covenants and the promise part of a covenant, That, um, and I made the statement that it is irrevocable, it is eternal. And that's a true statement. Um, when God makes a statement to us, he doesn't change his mind. And this is one of the classic questions that we study in theology, does God change? Does he change his mind? Does he change in the way that he uh, approaches us and treats us uh, based upon our behavior? And I would say, no, God is who he is, and the promise he makes is out of his person, not based upon who we are and what we can bring into that covenant. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to neglect the obligation that some of these covenants place upon us. We do have an obligation to serve the king. Um, that's part of being a citizen of the kingdom. And it's in exploring our obligation that we get into some of the elements of salvation that require action on our part. Uh, both actions of faith 
and actions of growth. That we're in time to be growing up in Christ, not to continue to be babes uh, requiring milk, but to grow up so that we have our senses trained to discern good and evil. We're supposed to eat meat, not milk. And that's Hebrews 5.17, or it's 5.13. And so we understand that there are promises and curses, there are obligations uh, in the covenant, and then there's usually a sign of the covenant. And that that sign of the covenant um, is, uh, can take a variety of different forms. We saw that the sign of the covenant in the case of Noah was a rainbow. It was God's declaration that uh, at the end of the rainstorm, he would uh, display uh, his grace. So that even, you know, every time you see a, a, a storm cloud, you know that God is going to withhold judgment. And the evidence of that is the rainbow. We have other types of covenants that are uh, not unilateral covenants. They're uh, bilateral covenants. And we enter into them today, similar to the kind of covenants we read about in the Bible. One of them is the covenant of marriage. Right? So we have the same process. The relationship between the two parties is defined in that covenant. The terms are stated for better, for worse, for sickness, for health, uh, rich or poor, all the different terms are stated. Um, and then there is uh, a uh, oath swearing, and that's the exchange of the vow, right? And then there is a sign of the covenant. And so we see this pattern even repeated today, and we understand that this is a pattern that God established very early and that it has to do with defining relationships and clearly stating the terms of who God is and what he's doing and what is required of us. What is required of us? It's not uh, sacrifice, but mercy. We're to become like God in that regard. And we see that uh, given to us in various prophetic utterances. So what we understand is that David and Jonathan entered into a covenant. And there was a sign of a covenant between them. And even though uh, they didn't have time to to put together uh, uh, some of the formalities of that covenant, it was nonetheless binding. And that's what Jonathan reminds David of. And it's also what David reminds Jonathan of, that covenants um, have an eternal component to them. The blessing may be conditional, or it may be uh, contingent upon... uh, fulfilling the obligation of the covenant, but the promise is eternal, and that's what's been reminded here. As David goes off with nothing, that's what he has. He has a covenant, and nothing else. And at that point, we read in chapter 21, it says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? So, First, we want to take a look at where is Nob. Okay, what I've got up here, this is the satellite image of, uh, of the central part of Israel. So let me uh, zoom out to give you some context here. So you see modern-day uh, Israel here. Um, in the, the northern part, you see the, the South Sea of Galilee, uh, the Dead Sea here in the south, the Jordan River connects them and actually goes up to the, the highlands here where you've got uh, Syria and Lebanon. 
Um, and the area that we're going to look at this morning, in fact, most of the, the area that we look at as we go through Samuel, occurred pretty much in this pocket right here in the middle. Where's Syria? Where's it to Israel? Syria, uh, Israel's right here. Oh, wow. Right. So this would be modern-day Israel. And it goes as far as uh, up here to the borders of Lebanon. And, and it uh, borders on Jordan and Syria over here. And so there's actually a corner where you can, um, if you were courageous, you could put one foot in Lebanon <laughs> and one foot in Syria, one hand in Jordan and one hand in Israel. Um, and you would definitely be under the, the scope of some sniper. <laughs> you have to be courageous. Um, and, and Israel actually took this area right here, which is a high point. It used to be a, a Bashan area. Um, and that it, it's a, a very elevated location. And so it was strategic for Israel to take this. So they actually took this in one of the wars. Um, and they did that to protect themselves. And if you look at the terrain there, you'd say, yeah, that's the area you want to take. You want to keep somebody from bombing shelter. Um, so we understand that modern-day Israel is, has ties to ancient Israel. And so even though this is a modern-day picture, and if we zoomed in, you'd actually see some of the cities in there, the, the terrain is, is largely the same, although uh, much more eroded. Uh, today, some of the valleys are not quite as, as sharp, and some of the peaks are not quite as, as uh, pointed. But nonetheless, um, this is uh, the area of Israel that we're looking at. And so, uh, in particular, we take a look at this area here in the center, which, coming from the Rift Valley here and the Jericho-Gilgal area, going uphill across this range, um, which runs north-south, that particular uh, range of hills um, was what became called the Patriarchal Highway. And the reason why is because this is where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs of the faith, um, spent a lot of time trekking north and south. This was the highway. And the reason why they would take this, what we would think of as a very difficult route, along the ridge route, the, the top of the ridges, rather than coming down to the plains is because there were enemies down on the plains. And it was actually rough going down on the plains. And so it was a, a much less resistance route and much less traveled route through uh, the ridges. And we understand that when, uh, when Joshua entered the land from Gilgal, the first area that he took was this area which we call today the Benjamin Plateau. And so we talked a little bit about the Benjamin Plateau. And uh, this is a, a little bit of a, a zoom on it. It basically um, runs this area right here. And you'll see that in the Benjamin Plateau is Gibeah, which is where Saul is from. So he was a Benjamite. Um, you'll also see the city of Ramah, which is where Samuel was from. Or at least at this point in his life, that's where he was living. At one point, he, uh, his, his mother took him to Shiloh. Uh, a little bit further north, up in Ephraim. Um, but at this point, he's uh, spending out his days in Ramah. So there's not a lot of distance between uh, Samuel and Saul. Um, we also see this city right down here called Nob, right next to Anathoth. And uh, I probably, if I zoomed in, you can see it a little bit better. There's an actual ridge that runs along here, such that Gibeah is separated by this ridge from Anathoth. 
And you can actually stand on the top of that ridge today and look down into ancient Anathoth, and that's where Jeremiah was from. Uh, no was where it was a priestly city. It was where uh, the priests retreated to after the destruction of Shiloh. So we understand that, uh, and I can go a little bit further north here. Is that in focus? I don't have my glasses on. <laughs> yes, I can read it from here. Read it? Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't wear my glasses a lot of times because they bother me. So I'd rather be a little bit uh, fuzzy. I guess that kind of works with the brain, too. Um, so Shiloh is up here in Ephraim. And uh, this is an area that the Philistines, at one time, came all the way from down here in their, their uh, primary plain, which is Gath and Ekron and, um, and the other uh, three cities that are part of their uh, metabolis. And they came up and conquered the Benjamin Plateau and pushed as far north as Shiloh, and they actually destroyed Shiloh. And it was never rebuilt. And we read about that. Jeremiah quotes what happened to Shiloh. He said, remember um, what happened in the destruction of this and how when it was destroyed, when God pronounced judgment on what the, the Hebrew peoples were doing at that point in time, it never was rebuilt. And so the priests, uh, who was the priest in Shiloh at the time that Samuel was taken there? Anybody remember back in the first part of the first Samuel? Eli. Right. So Eli was a priest here, and what was given to him was a prophecy about his uh, priesthood and his family. And you read about that in uh, chapter 4, because uh, what happened was that uh, uh, Eli's sons were evil, and uh, they ended up taking the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh and took it down here to uh, the coastal plain to participate in a battle because they were they figured God was in a box and so they brought him in the box to the battle and they lost him. And if you can imagine, even people lost God. And uh, so there was a judgment upon uh, Eli's family that there would be no old priests uh, remaining in his family and ultimately his uh, his line of priests would be completely uh, extinguished and that that prophecy was given and in the first part of it was fulfilled on the day that the ark was captured and that his two sons died but there was one son uh, grandson that survived and uh, that grandson then uh, came down here to know. And from there, they continued the priestly line. And we're going to read about that priestly line a little bit this morning. Because that's where David goes. You look at, okay, he's under trial. He's got nowhere. All he has is a clothes on his back. Right? So he's already gone to the, the prophet. The prophet said, run. He went to the king's son and a good counselor. And the king's son said, run. So he does. He goes to the priest. So look at where David is looking for advice. Okay, This is the kind of behavior you would expect from a king. He's going to seek out the word of God from the prophet. He's going to seek out the good counsel of godly men that have God's kingdom uh, as part of their calling on their life, defending God and his kingdom. 
and then he's going to go to the priesthood. So we see that David came to know to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech is a descendant of Eli. He's a great-grandchild of Eli. And, uh, and the, when Ahimelech comes out, he says he's trembling. When he meets David, he says, Why are you alone and no one with you? So he knows that something's afoot. He doesn't know what's afoot, but he knows that something is wrong. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter, and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you, and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. In other words, the king sent me on a secret mission. So secret I can't tell you, I'd have to kill you. Um, and my men have been sent to a secret location, so they're waiting for me. It's just me coming to you. Um, what do you think of that? What, what strikes you about that as you read that? Yeah, he's, he's telling a fib, right? He's telling a bold-faced lie. Now, we've discussed about what the Bible uh, condones and what it doesn't condone, and uh, different parts of these uh, narratives that uh, there's no commentary on. So there's no commentary here on David's behavior. Right? At least not overtly. We don't see the narrator come in and say, David told a bold-faced lie to the priest uh, because he was afraid. Right? Well, you but, might have been saving the life of the priest, too, because yeah. if the priest, Saul found out, the priest knowingly enabled Saul, or David, helped him, he would have been taken out. So, and, and David knew that. David knew that, um, that he was putting the priest at risk. So, um, you know, our kinder judgment of David would say he was trying to protect the priest. Right? So this is one of those moral dilemmas or ethical dilemmas where he chose the greater good. Let me preserve the life of the priest. At the same time, i got to get some clothes and food and, and a weapon. Right? Um, so that's one way of viewing it. Another is to just take it that the Bible provides no commentary here, and so this isn't the, the central part of what God would have us learn, That other than that we understand that people can lie. And they can do it for a lot of good reasons. David didn't want to die. He, didn't, he needed help. And so he told a lie. Um, and <clears throat> there is no judgment here about whether that was good or bad. It's just relayed to us. And uh, he goes on, he says, Now, therefore, what do you have in mind? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever can be found. Interestingly, he asked for five loaves. Uh, he knows he's gone to the priest, so he knows the priest has some bread. The priest answered uh, David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, oh, Surely women have been kept from us, as previously, when I set out. Uh, and the vessels of the uh, young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So he's saying, yeah, you don't have to worry about this. We've, we've been living uh, righteous lives. Uh, we are clean in the, the sense that they had gone through all of the ritual cleansing and preparation um, for uh, this kind of... Uh, uh, holy uh, war that they were commissioned to, even though it's top secret. And uh, and the priest then gave him the consecrated bread. Now, who knows what this consecrated bread is? 
Anybody in here? Showbread. The showbread. What do we know about that? Well, it was supposed to be uh, pretty much made fresh every day, put on the table in the uh, sanctuary, and the ark was behind it, but this would go on the table uh, that was between the lampstands and the sanctuary. Right, so there was uh, actually three tables in, in my mind of how the temple would be laid out. One had the lamp on it, which is the light of God. Um, the other had the bread on it, which there were 12 loaves, and it was to be uh, fresh bread. It was commanded to be fresh. And that, uh, that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? And then in the middle would be the altar of incense, where the, the prayers and offering would continually be going up before God. So the priest, in his daily duty, would be going in there, checking on the bread, checking on the incense, and checking on the oil in the lamp. That was part of his daily ritual, to go in and make sure that the light didn't go out, the bread was always fresh, and that that uh, fragrant offering was always going up before the Lord. It was only once a year that he actually went behind the curtain to the Holy of Holies to make atonement for himself and the people. Um, and so what, what the priest is saying, he's saying, well, I can give you some of this bread, um, but you have to have consecrated yourself. You have to be like the bread. And uh, was that allowed or not allowed? What do you think? Pardon? The bread was supposed to go to the priest. So when the priest would rotate out the bread to put the fresh bread in, he could eat the, the older bread. But nobody else was allowed to eat that. So here you have David telling a lie and saying, give me some of that consecrated bread. And the priest says, sure, I can do that. So you see all sorts of things wrong with this story. Right? And, uh, and, but the priest says, you know, he wants to cover his, cover his bases, so he says, you've got to make sure that you yourselves have been consecrated. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. So um, let's take a look a little bit. I'm going to zoom out just a little bit here. Okay, Doeg, which I, I think that's a great name for a guy that's a traitor. Um, he, uh, he was from Edom. So what do you know about Edom? Edomites are down here in the south, and uh, they were uh, there were uh, a couple of brothers, one by the name of Jacob and the other by the name of Esau. And who was the firstborn? Esau was the firstborn, not Jacob. And Jacob, the deceiver, stole the birthright of his brother, which means that he got a double blessing from his father. Not that both of them wouldn't inherit but that uh, the firstborn got a double portion. Well, Jacob stole that from Esau. And there's the whole story about how Jacob goes up uh, north and stays with his uncle Laban and then uh, barters for uh, his wife and, and uh, the whole story about love and redemption and, and uh, soap opera that occurs. And 
<laughs> he's coming back. He meets his brother Esau as he's crossing the river here, about in this area right here. And uh, he, he's expecting Esau is going to wipe him out because Esau obviously is a strong man. And he's still ticked off probably about losing, getting tricked like he did. And, uh, and Esau said, no, go ahead and live. You know, I, I'm going to hang out down here where I've already established my kingdom. And you, you're free to enter into this land and fight with all the ites and, and uh, all those others that are going to oppose you as you come in here. I've got already my kingdom and my empire set up down here. And so this uh, is Esau's descendants down here in Edom. Now we know that when uh, the Hebrew children left Egypt, they had to pass through Edom and Moab. And they received opposition there. In fact, they had all sorts of enemies as they came through the southern part of the land. And uh, so they were not particularly um, favorable towards the Edomites. Um, it's interesting that these guys continue to play a role in the Hebrews' uh, lives up through uh, and after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and that there was a, a very famous king that came from Edom. It was King Herod, the great builder that was the king of the Jews. Right? There's been a long-standing rivalry between Esau and Jacob for a long time. And even though these Edomites would come in and they would play like they were full-blooded Hebrew children, descendants of Jacob, um, they weren't. And there was a constant tension. So you get this guy, Doeg, who is uh, a servant of Saul. So he's positioned himself into the royal court. Interesting how that happens. And uh, he befriends uh, Saul in that, in that regard. And he finds himself down here in Nob at the time that um, David shows up. Now, David sees him there. And we're going to find out later that David suspected that he couldn't be trusted because he's an Edomite. Can you trust an Edomite? I mean, I'm a Hebrew. I'm not going to trust an Edomite. But we see that, that uh, Doeg is there. And uh, he's the chief of Saul's shepherds. So that means the reason that um, Saul took him into his court is because uh, Saul, being a uh, a king like the peoples around him, the Gentile peoples, uh, was amassing his kingdom, which means that he needed to have lots of wealth and he needed to have big armies and all that kind of stuff. Well, part of his tax district was this area down here in Bethlehem and Tekoa, and this is shepherd country. And so Doeg um, probably knew of David's family because they were shepherds in this area. And uh, he was in charge of collecting taxes and, and uh, looking over the shepherds that were part of Saul's kingdom, right? So you see this story goes much deeper than just, yeah, Doeg was an Edomite. He was a, a, a distrusted, uh, hated person in many circles. He probably knew David and had something against David's family because David's family was supposed to be exempt from taxes, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know, that 
you have all of the elements of, of uh, difficulty and intrigue here, and you see it play out. It says, David said to Ahimelech, Now, there is not a spear or a sword on hand, for I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So uh, David now has, uh, in addition to the clothes on his back, he now has some bread. And he has Goliath's sword, which is a pretty substantial weapon. Um, it also says that this sword was behind the ephod. Do you know what the ephod is? Pardon? Yeah, the, the priest would wear an ephod. Uh, in fact, it says Samuel, when he was a little child, wore a linen ephod. And the ephod um, was a, a breastplate thing that had 12 stones on it to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And it had a special stone on each shoulder. And uh, you're going to find that David has a relationship with this ephod later on. I, when I say a relationship, there's, he ends up dancing with only the ephod on and his mm-hmm. wife says that he's indecent and it leads to a whole family feud thing. <laughs> and, uh, but... There's also uh, something special about the ephod, and, and that it can be more than just the breastplate. It can actually be uh, the house or the place that they would keep what they called the urim and the thummim, which were uh, divining uh, oracle things. And uh, because we don't know exactly what the urim and the thummim are, other than that we read about them, but we understand that they're involved and uh, basically uh, making uh, divine, divine decisions, seeking God's counsel. And it's kind of like when they would cast lots. So possibly when, uh, when Saul was trying to figure out who had sinned in the camp, and they cast lots and they had the people over on one side and Saul and Jonathan over on the other, the Thummim would be the not guilty side. And the Urim would be the guilty side, right? So he ended up on the guilty side when they used this method of divination. Well, it's interesting that as David approaches Ahimelech, he's actually asking for, in addition to the weapon of God, or of of Goliath, and the bread to sustain him, he's also asking for the word of God. Now, we don't see the specific revelation that he asks for here, but we know that that occurs because we're going to see it subsequently referenced. So it's important that when David went to the priest, we understand that he was looking for provision, protection, and he was looking for the presence of God and uh, direction of what he should do next. So David arose and fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. So... Uh, who is who is Akish? Here's Gath, all the way down here. So David's up here at No. This is the Benjamin Plateau. He has to go down through this uh, hill country, and very very rugged in here. And uh, this area, right as you approach uh, the, the coastal plain, there's a, an area that's raised up here called the Shvelah, kind of like the foothills. 
And uh, so he has to go down through one of these classic routes, down into the Shvelad. He goes out here to the coastal plain to Gath. And Akish is the king in Gath at that point in time. Uh, who is who is Akish and what is Gath? He's one of the Philistine kings that, for their confederates, <coughs> that's the same town that Shalash came from. Exactly. And <laughs> He's taking Goliath. He's taking Goliath. I expect that David's banking on the fact that Akish would like one of Saul's chief officials to defect to his side. Mm -hmm. We watch that all the time with somebody who's a, you know, if somebody who's a leader in some enemy country were to suddenly say, you know, I'm out of here, I'm going to America. He would be welcomed as a defector, and he would find a right. comfortable place to live out of reach of the people who might want to enter his help. And we would we could put that up as a star next to our name, that, you know, somebody from the wrong side had now come to our side. Right. And Akish could look at this and say, whoa, Saul's top general. The son of law, just come over to me. Right. Cool. That's that's what uh, I imagine David's thinking. That I mean, where is he going to go? Right. He he can go into the enemy's territory, or he can go into the enemy's territory, because Saul has made him his enemy and is seeking to kill him. So why not go to the Philistines and uh, pretend that you're a defector? Not only that, but you're you know the equivalent of a a Soviet defector bringing a MiG plane to the United States uh, by taking Goliath's sword and bringing that back to, to Gath, where he was from. Right? So David, he's a shrewd guy. Right? He's, he's young, he's inexperienced, but he's playing his cards here, saying, the only place that I can go and gain some shelter is to Gath and go to this king and hope that he in fact has the, the perspective that you just relayed, that this is a, you know, a coup on his part to be able to get someone that was inside Saul's court to find out you know, what's going on. Now, of course, uh, Akish ends up not responding that way, as we read. It says, But the servants of Akish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they dance, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he shows up and the king's counselors say, you know, do you realize this guy's the king's son-in-law and he's actually uh, a king uh, in the land and that he came and he killed us? You know, this is the guy that they sent against us who is the great warrior. Not only that, but he's got Goliath's sword. How much more culpable can the guy be? Right? And so they, uh, they they advise him, lock him up. So David says, he took these words to heart, greatly feared the king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen? Uh, that you have brought this one to act uh, the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So David 
intrude, going to Gath, trying to get some protection, um, and a place where he can hide from Saul, realizes, bad, bad choice, and he goes to plan B, which is, I'll just be crazy, right? And he starts drooling and, and all this stuff, and they basically put him out of the king's court in a cage. So he's thrown out of Gath. That's what we read about when we read through Psalm 34 this morning. That was when David feigned madness in the presence of the king of Gath. Now, again, he, he tells a story to the priest. He tells a story when he comes to Gath, and then he ends up pretending that he's mad. And uh, you got to wonder about David and, and what kind of moral example that he's being held up for us if he indeed is being held up as a moral example. Maybe there's more to this story than the moral example of David and his behavior. So David departed from there. I, I give you that as a teacher. Uh, so David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So where's the cave of Adullam? So <clears throat> David's kicking grounds here. We understand Bethlehem, north past Jerusalem, or Jebus. Uh, he certainly knows the Benjamin Plateau because he served uh, Saul up here uh, in Gibeah. And uh, he knows Samuel and Ramah. And he, he certainly knows this, uh, this coastal plain down here because that's where he'd go and fight the Philistines. Um, and his great battle occurred right here, uh, just not too far from Azekah, between uh, outside of Soko. This is the valley right here, and you can kind of see it as a valley there. Um, you actually see the ridge right here uh, on one side and the ridge on the other side, and you can imagine the, the Hebrew children on one ridge and the, the uh, Philistine armies on the other ridge, and they're shouting at each other, and... Uh, and, and uh, there's taunt going on. And this is where David slew Goliath, right here. So it's not far from Gath. And you remember that when that occurred, that they chased the Philistines all the way from where this battle occurred, down through uh, Shorim, all the way down to Gath. So David is well known in this story of killing Goliath. And he's in Gath, and he takes off, and he goes here, back to where he had his... Uh, his strong experience in battle, uh, to Adulam. Now, one of the features of this part of the country in the Shvelah, and I'm going to try and zoom in on it a little bit, maybe you can see it. Um, maybe not. What, what you have here is you have a transition of the geography. Um, so you've got really hard uh, limestone formations up here in these... Uh, ridges and, and hill country, which is Judah. And, uh, I mean, it's really hard rock. Uh, it's malleable in the sense that they can uh, uh, shape it into, into square stones for building and things like that. So very good building stone. As you come down into this Shephelah and you hit the coastal plain, the coastal plain is really uh, sandy. Um, and so you get a lot of drainage in the soil, and so it's a good place for growing uh, crops because you get a lot of your moisture down here. You have a, a relatively flat plains that have collected what topsoil is available um, and very kind of a sandy, uh, loamy soil down here. But right in between 
is a transition from this hard limestone to uh, a different type of geological formation that's more sandy. Um, and they, this is a, a softer limestone. And on the surface of that limestone, it forms a really hard, uh, marly surface. And uh, so you get uh, a really hard uh, rock surface and underneath it a very chalky limestone that can be carved out. So what occurs naturally in this area is that you'll have caves because uh, you'll have the formation on the surface that's hard and then that soft limestone underneath just kind of carves out or erodes away and so you get natural caves in here. And that's what you see if you go to Abdulab today. And unfortunately, I only have a, a 35 millimeter film of this. I don't have digital pictures of this area. But this is an area where they would keep uh, pigeons and things like that for the, the sacrifice that they would take to Jerusalem. Because it was a perfect place for raising uh, pigeons and doves because they had all of these limestone caves and they would just carve out little nest areas in these caves. And so you go in there and that's what you see. You see a whole bunch of little holes in the rock where they would uh, keep the, the birds for sacrifice. Well, at this point in history, um, these natural rock cave formations had formed in this area and that's where David retreats to. And it's considered a stronghold because you can defend it. Right? It's in a, a country that is hilly, although not uh, really rugged hills like back in here. So you can move around in it. Um, but it's very easy to hide because you can go underground in these caves. And you can uh, then defend your caves, uh, these strongholds, and that's where David escaped to. So he escaped to the cave of Abulam, and when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. Wow, what a rabble. That's so like quite a crew. Yeah. So he's, uh, he's collecting uh, the folks that have been uh, disenfranchised by Saul. Right? The ones who had a heavy tax burden and maybe got put out of their house. Um, those that uh, had been in some way dissed by Saul. And they came to David along with his family. And there were 400 men with them. This becomes the basis of David's uh, army. He's starting, as you see, he, he went from no clothes or nothing but clothes on his back to now he's formed an army of 400 malcontents. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. So he takes off from here, from Adulam. He's got his army with him now. <coughs> and he heads back uh, around the south through his home country and crosses over into Moab. And where is David from? We know that he's from Bethlehem. Where is his uh, grandfather from? Or his grandmother? From Moab. From Moab. Ruth. So um, he comes to part of his family's ancestral home. And he says, hey, can you take care of my, my dad and, and my brothers? Because we're under siege. Saul's trying to kill us. Trying to kill me, but he'll take out the whole family. So he hides over here in Moab because 
no good uh, Benjamite would ever go into Moab. So we're, we're bad at it here, and we're not going to be able to tell the whole story. Um, so we'll continue with the story next week. But um, one of the things that you're going to see uh, preeminent in here is that this is not about holding David up as a moral example. Although you'll see that as David makes mistakes, he owns his mistakes. And you'll, you'll see that at the end of chapter 22 here, when it turns out that um, Ahimelech and his family is totally wiped out, except for one. And David takes it as his personal uh, failure in that he put Ahimelech at risk and actually caused, in a way, his, uh, his family's demise. And so David owns that. But what you see is you see the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his word. That's the primary theme that you're going to see popping out as we move through now. Not so much the moral example of the characters. The characters are there, and the moral story is there, to help us see how God is working in history. How he never gives up. And that's what David related in his psalm, Psalm 34. You go back and reread that. What you see is you see a steadfast confidence in God and his working in history, even in the midst of a soap opera. Right? That's what we're going to fully uh, unpack next week. Oh, I, I was just thinking that God's grace on us doesn't always absolutely require us to be perfect all the time. He understands our frailty. Right. The main thing is our view and our outlook and the feel of our heart and if our focus, our, there again, your world view uh, of working toward that goal. And although you may falter here and there, that doesn't condemn you necessarily when you're continuing with the right path. And that's that is the encouragement for us. The encouragement is, is that as broken and, and messed up as we are, number one, God doesn't give up on us. That he's got a plan and that he's fulfilling that plan. And that that is to bless us and to show mercy to us. Um, we need lots of that. We do. Why don't we go ahead and, and uh, close here in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your word to us and uh, the big bite that we took this morning as David is on the run and understanding uh, some of the intrigue and um, the, the pieces of this, the narrative that you've preserved for us so that we can understand how this is very much like uh, how we live today that we have these same kinds of intrigue and difficult decisions and lack of understanding of what's going on in the world around us but Lord we know that we can trust in you that we can seek you for your provision, for your protection, um, and for your word, your very presence with us, Lord. And we just ask that you would help uh, uncover your word to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would reveal truth to us, that we can uh, see clearly, and that we can grow up truly to be uh, mature uh, in your sight and not base. Lord, we thank you for this. We ask for your uh, your hand on us as we leave here today, protection, provision. We also ask uh, for a powerful working through Bob this morning as he shares uh, your word that many people would be touched and impacted by uh, who you are, uh, Lord, Lord, the resurrected Christ. And we thank you for this. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.